Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Tech Strong Women, where we feature amazing women doing amazing things in tech. I'm Jody Ashley, executive producer here at Tech Strong, and I'm here with my co-host, Tracy Reagan, creator and CEO of Deploy Hub. And, you know, in her free time, she's busy working with the Linux Foundation, where she sits on the boards of the OpenSSF and the CDF Technical Oversight Committee. Sounds like fun. <laughs> Before I introduce today's guest, I want to give you a quick update about what's happening here at TechStrong. Be sure to register for TechStrongCon 2023 virtual event on March 16th. Speaker submissions are still open, and we always love sponsors. TechStrong will also be hosting our annual DevOps Connect DevSecOps Day at RSAC in San Francisco on April 24th. And be sure to look for us on Broadcast Alley all week where we'll be live streaming. Stop by and say hi. You can register for all of our events by going to techstrongevents.com and be sure to tune in every day to TechStrong TV for great shows and interviews. Hey, Tracy, what's on your mind today? Well, Jody, you know, um, first of all, it's great to be here. And I'm really excited for today's guest. Uh, Liz Rice is amazing um, and she's in the security space. And it's timely because, you know, we talked about a few months back, um, probably early in the show, we talked about the Biden administration's requirement for submitting software bill of materials or SBOMs with your software if you're doing business with the U.S. government, which, by the way, is a very reasonable request, to be honest. Even though many companies may struggle with it, it is a reasonable request. I, we've always been waiting for the other shoe to drop. And in this past week, we heard, it did. Um, so now we have the European Cyber Resiliency Act. Uh, I've read through it. It's not as straightforward as an executive order that says, hey, hey S-bombs are needed. Um, it's far more detailed. Uh, and I have a few uh, some concerns about the open source community and how the open source community are, is going to comply with some of the requirements. And it does have a list of the kinds of software that they're going to be worried about. So it may not apply to all open source tools or open source packages. Um, but anyway, it's out there and people should be uh, aware of what Europe is doing now to help safeguard European software and what gets installed in European uh, environments around security. So it's starting to get heated up. This discussion around security and software security and supply chain security when it comes to software is, is getting pretty real. Um, and I'm hoping that we can get some insights from Liz on this. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, Tracy already let the cat out of the bag. <laughs> Our guest today is Liz Rice. Liz, I'm going to let you um, tell us what you're doing. Um, what you're up to and and just give us an, an introduction about you sure okay well first of all thanks for having me uh my name is liz rice <laughs> my job title is chief open source officer with isovalent and isovalent is the company that originally created the cilium project which is now part of the cncf and it's based on ebpf which is a technology that i'm super excited about so um i mean as tracy mentioned i'm been involved in sort of security side of things for quite a while. We can use eBPF for some really interesting security related things. Um, as we're recording, I'm kind of preparing for the Cloud Native Security Conference, which is next week, probably 
a week or two ago by the time you actually see the recording. But uh, yeah, so uh, things like supply chain is, I am absolutely confident is going to be a huge topic of conversation there. And I think EBPF will be as well. So what's your thoughts on the Cybersecurity Resilience Act? Oh, yeah. And yeah. How is so, it going to impact open source? Should we be worried? Yeah. So actually, another role that I have, another hat that I wear, I'm on the board of an organization called Open UK, which is all about using open technology, open source, open hardware, open data, more in society. Um, and a big part of that is related to policy now I'm you know I'm not a lawyer I'm a technologist but I get to hear you know some of the opinions of people who are much more kind of knowledgeable in that area than I am and I know Amanda Brock who's the CEO on of Open UK was talking about how at least in an early draft of that act there was or there appeared to be some confusion about the if you if you release open source software you're releasing it into the wild and letting people use it, but you're not going to take liability for it. Nobody's going to take liability unless there's some kind of commercial arrangement. And I think that at least in the earlier draft, from what I understood, it, it was kind of confusing that, um, uh, you know, the, the liability that no open source project is going to be able to take responsibility for you know, or liability for something that's an open source piece of code. So, yeah, I think that might still need to be ironed out. I'm not sure. <laughs> but it, it kind of drives down deeper into even commercial packages who are using open source packages, because mm. now the commercial packages, are, they're going to basically be saying they're going to take liability for the open source packages that they're consuming. Um, yeah, and I think it, Isn't that right? How it's yeah, written? I, I don't think that's awful in the sense that whoever is the commercial company who's going to take that liability on and they're going to have to decide what you know what risk that involves and whether they're being paid enough to take that risk they get to choose whether they're using open source components or not uh, they i think it will help to encourage good practice because although no open source project in its right mind will take liability that doesn't mean that they can't do good practices and that they can't have things like software bill of materials. So things like the CNCF is really encouraging projects to incorporate more of these like dependency management practices and S bombs and, and all this good stuff that is coming up now, the tooling that we're starting to have around tracking your dependencies, open source projects can do that. And uh, you know, that, that's a very good thing and then commercial projects that depend on them can can make decisions about you know okay does it have you know an open ssf score card you know, this is the scorecard project the scorecard yeah the open ssf yeah, scorecard yeah um so i think things like that will help commercial projects understand the kind of risk they might be taking you know um, if they... i kind of feel like uh you know we at the open ssf we really have to get our uh our ducks in a row or our piece in a row, I guess you'd say. <laughs> um, but uh, it's going to take us a while to build out these practices. And I just hope that open source uh, will still be consumed because I think it's a, 
you know, open source has taken us a very long way. Look, Kubernetes is open source, for goodness sakes. Mm. Uh, so how do we, you know, it's going to be interesting over the next, I'd say, three years and how we're navigating it and the impact that open source um, will have with these new with these new acts. And, you know, we still have other regions. China is certainly uh, to follow. Mm. Um, uh, you yeah. know, what, what they're going to say. So it just makes it scarier and scarier to use external unknown code. And that is, that describes open source, especially packages, you know, maybe, maybe not tools, um, you know, like uh, we have our, an Artilius project that manages and consumes SBOMs. Um, we have Kubernetes. Those may not be as, uh, the, and Jenkins, uh, other tools, Backstage, there's all kinds of great uh, kind of DevOps tooling that you use to build out your software, but what you're delivering and the packages that's being included in it I feel like we're going to see an impact in the in the future um, in terms of commercial code that is being you know we're talking about COTS base basically that mm -hmm. we were that we're selling to other uh, companies an entire package especially if you're selling into the European market that there's going to be a concern about putting open source in there so maybe there's going to be a lot more work for coding or tools like Copilot where you take snippets right. Yeah. yeah, I think it's going to change. I mean, is it going to be a disruption? There just is. The worst outcome, and I, I barely even want to say this idea out loud, but the worst outcome would be like, not necessarily just Copilot. I don't want to point the finger at any given implementation, but AI generated software that creates <sighs> a commercial variant of something that's essentially copied from the open source project. And that, that would be awful i think you know, how that, will ai if, in general affect open source i mean i'm not an expert but i'm just all this stuff that's going on right now it's ai 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 does this ai does that it scares me <laughs> the really like, frightening thing is how like at a superficial level it can be really quite accurate you know you can read these amazing that's what's articles and you think oh, wow that's 90% right but it's the 10% that's wrong that's dangerous mm -hmm. and that's I mean that's got to be true in code as well right the well, we're going to see we're going to see more code uh automation tools I don't know what what you want to call it more code like more more solutions like copilot mm. um you know we just started hearing about what is it chat gpt chat yeah, gpt yeah. <laughs> yes. that's yeah. all I'm getting do you want to talk about this? Do you want to talk about a chat, chat, chat? That's all we're getting bombarded with on my end right now. And it's like, wow, scary. Not, you know, not my, my answer would be not necessarily. Um, I think it's a very interesting application for AI. Uh, will we be able to see through it soon enough? Yeah, we'll learn. Humans are good at pattern matching too. <laughs> Uh, professors will be able to go, oh yeah, that that's definitely not written by this student. I know better. Uh, right. So I think that we'll see through that. Um, I certainly yeah, wish but I won't it just evolve? Every time okay. we think we're seeing through it, it's like that there was a big thing this week about a university, was it Wharton? And somebody used it to write a paper and the paper was great, but they said that the, the English used in it was so perfect. You could tell 
that it, <laughs> that it was fake. The information was great, but the grammar was so spot on. They're like, yeah, yeah. no human wrote this. No human wrote it, right? Especially so now American they're going to throw in dumb words and, you know, they'll, they'll, you know, it's been a big topic of conversation in my household in general. So. Well, I think in the coding world, we're going to see something similar, but what I believe, but what I foresee happening are tools like, again, I'll just keep bringing you up Copilot, where instead of having open source packages that we're consuming, they're going to have those modules that they've now have absorbed and they are pushing forward and they're going to have the ownership of that now. So Copilot will have the licensing um, for that under some, I don't know how it licensed uh, the, the code. But it's generating code just like chat, uh, whatever it is, GPT or whatever it is, uh, is doing. And I, and I think that, will, that may solve some of the open source package issues, but at the same time, that it will crush the open source market in terms of consumable packages. Like hey, Trace, let's stop for a sec because your mic went out. It did. Yeah. We can kind of hear you, but you sound like you're... It in the other the room. I think you moved in it. I, admit, I, I got excited and I know. <laughs> so anyway, just we'll go back and go. start your thought over and we'll get it edited. No big deal. Okay. So what I, uh, when we talk about things like um, code generation, what's what I believe will happen is that these packages that are commonly used that people consume as an open source will be included in the code generation. So they no longer will be coming from an open source library that you pull from some, some location, some, some repository. And that is how we're gonna address things like the Cyber, uh, the Cyber Resiliency Act, because then the company will consume, will, that's sending out the software will, will be the producers of it, even though they used a, something that's generating code. I think there's gonna be some really interesting intellectual property discussions and cases Absolutely. where you know if uh, ai didn't make everything up completely from scratch you know it's learned by looking at other code and you know i've i've seen some uh, if i use ebpf as an example i've seen some little paragraphs of text about ebpf that people have generated you know in, at work you know kind of for fun you know like let's see what it says about and you can recognize some of the phrases. You, know, you can see that this is exactly what we say. We've said this phrase over and over and over <laughs> again, and the AI has picked it up. And you know, maybe that's not quite our intellectual property, but the, 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 there's going to be some point where you know, Copilot or, or an alternative is it infringing other people's copyright by you know regurgitating? lines of code algorithms whatever you know whatever level we want to think about that uh you know sometimes if you look at other people's a bit like you said you know you can spot when somebody's copied an essay or if it wasn't their work <laughs> are we going to start seeing ai generated code that's really just infringing other people's copyright uh, i would say yes yeah. <laughs> No, no yeah, this must world be thrilled. <laughs> Income stream for years. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We will see. And we'll. The, I think the bigger looking... question is, let's take a pool to see when the first lawsuit happens. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I think don't... it is going. It is going to disrupt the software developer, though. We are starting to see a, a shift in everybody's not coding, writing every single line of code, and that's why open source has been so popular. 
And as these kinds of tools become more and more um, accepted, I think that the role of the software developer has it will be will change. Um, we'll get good at, at putting together the pieces like a Lego set. Mm. And at the same time, you know, um, that might be good for women who are at home, working from home. Um, well, yeah, the history of computing had women working from home back in the early days. So, yeah, you know. yep. And, and not a lot of women go and take software classes. They don't take, they don't, they don't take programming classes. I think it's less than 10% in most universities of women in, um, in, in taking software classes and learning to code. However, they may very well be able to pick up fairly quickly from a junior level, you know, two-year program um, coding and be able to use these tools. And maybe the industry will shift and more women will become part of it because they want a job that they can do from home and raise their kids. It's kind of like when I was a kid, my neighbor, her mother worked from home and I thought it was the coolest thing. Um, but she was a, uh, she typed like 130 words a minute. And she sat with the headphones on and she uh, typed up all at one doctor's notes for the entire mm -hmm. day. And somebody would deliver his, his, uh, his notes and his recordings and she would sit and type. And I thought it was awesome because his mom was there all the time, right? And she could get up, do laundry, cook for us, do whatever she needed to do to be a mom. And she still had a job. And I always thought that was just amazing. So, so maybe that will, that will happen for women. So I, I have a little story. I did that when my kids were little, yeah, I absolutely did that. But it, but technology evolved the job I was doing away. It started out by driving to a truck and picking up documents to to enter every day, and I stayed home with my two kids. Then the documents became a CD. We'd pick up a CD, and then it became an online enter situation where we'd pull it up and we'd enter from the document and then it went away because the system could scan and recognize it all and they didn't need us at all that happened yep. over about a five-year period mm. but I did that from home so I could stay home with my kids till they were school age exactly and I think a lot of women want to do that when I was a kid when I was kind of learning to type um uh, yeah, I, I did learn to type on a typewriter and uh, my my mum was a psychiatrist and she actually had me typing up her notes some you know just as kind of, <laughs> and uh, which I really enjoyed because I was like typing and you know but it was I don't know how many times I must have and she specialized in old people as well so I must have typed the word dementia thousands of times and it turned out I was spelling it wrong. I spent spelt it T U R E at the end of like thousands of people's notes. That's I don't know. I'd heard the word. I just assumed that was how it was spelled. That's amazing. So then, no how spell did you check go? on the typewriter? No. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you go from uh, a teen? spelling dementia wrong uh, <laughs> to software did you did you take uh, C computer science in college I actually took engineering in college but I was already really into computers before I did that I, uh, you know we had a ZX80 like this tiny little 1k RAM machine <laughs> just did basic and 
when we first got it, I was a bit disappointed because what I really wanted was like a video game. And uh, this computer arrived and I thought, well, I'll make the most of it. And then I taught myself <laughs> programming and that was it. And I, I always knew I was going to work with computers. So I didn't want to do computer science as a degree just because the engineering course looked more interesting and a bit broader. I was quite interested in things like electronics as well. And, and I wanted to be quite practical. But uh, so there was an element of programming and logic and things in my degree but it wasn't a computer science degree yeah, yeah I, I wanted to build cars oh right yeah and my mother said what are you gonna live, move to Detroit and then I was and I'm from California I was like mm, that, maybe that's not the best career for me I was like don't they build cars in California and she's like all the big companies are in Detroit <laughs> so I I changed to business math and most of that was computer stuff okay yeah but engineering was what I was interested in. So Detroit was where the last um, uh, KubeCon was. Yeah. And I thought it was actually a really great place. I, I you know, it was really welcoming. I, I was only there for, like, you know, a few days. But and it was definitely um, it had a variety of different neighborhoods, let's say. It does. But, um, but you know, given how negative a lot of people had been beforehand right. I was like actually no this is nice this is a lot of people have been incredibly welcoming yeah I'm glad to hear that you know it's it's probably going through a revival a uh, CSC used to be uh, in Detroit they okay. were one of those big tall buildings so they had a technology sector that they were uh, slowly kind of trying to bring around before the late I guess it was probably late 1990s early 2000s where they really started going through a pretty heavy recession mm, mm. so after yeah, after you really had dark times but uh yeah it was it was uh, I thought as a visitor it was it was a good place to visit yeah yeah our team really enjoyed it as well tech strong had a had a group there doing video and and they really had a good time as well mm, good so, Liz, so, tell us about KubeCon. Was there anything really cool that you learned, or anything that you want to share? Oh, trying to remember what was what was big back then. That was in November. So long ago. It was like oh, I, another year. <laughs> yeah. So, um, one of the things that was really fun for for me was um, so Cillian Project has been, you know, growing. We um, hit the button on a PR to apply for graduation. So that'll be a massive step. And we had our first ever um, kind of in-person community meeting because pandemic, we haven't been able to do it really before. And it, it we honestly didn't know how many people would show up to this project meeting because, you know, it's it was one of the pre pre-event days we didn't know how many people would be in town and there's loads of these um, co-located events and uh, we put up a sign-up sheet and there wasn't a huge amount of activity on the sign-up sheets so we thought well worst case you know there's quite a few maintainers here and we'll get on with some work or something we'll be we'll be fine and then people just kept arriving and showing up and we had like a packed room we had to keep going and getting more chairs which was brilliant you know seeing people yeah. wanting to get involved and some of them came with like I've got this particular issue I really <laughs> want to you know get into the nitty-gritty of or other people who were just like 
I heard something was interesting. Can you tell me what it is? You know, so uh, it was really why, great. Why don't you do that for us? Because I'm not sure that the uh, we, we've really clarified the project that you're working on. Mm, yeah, it's, sure. It, and it's incubating at the CNCF. It is. Yeah. yeah. Um, it is. It's based on this technology called eBPF, uh, which we can come to in a minute. And it <laughs> is really observability, networking and security for cloud native not necessarily even just Kubernetes, although the vast majority of people are using it in Kubernetes environments. But we do have some people using it for things like standalone load balancers, replacing some uh, like physical boxes for, for load balancers. And yeah, the, the, the amazing power of it is really based on eBPF, which is this technology that allows you to run programs within the kernel so you can hook into different events which could be things like a network packet arriving um, or different points in the network stack and you can change the behavior of the kernel when these events occur so you can do things like get a network packet and modify it and send it somewhere else so we can use it in Cilium to do things like um bypass some parts of the network stack that aren't necessary for cloud native networking so it makes performance better um, we can do things like network policy so very efficiently in the kernel checking whether or not a given network packet or connection is in or out of policy and if it's not in policy we just throw it away doesn't happen um, so it's super powerful and really interesting because you get into the kind of nitty-gritty of the kernel and and uh you know how how is this networking stack really working and things like that so yeah i'm finding it really fascinating well when you talk about code that's that deep in the stack open source code that deep in the stack i have to go back to i wonder how the cyber resiliency act is going to impact <laughs> that level of code i hope that when you figure that out your, your the attorney that you were, that you guys might work with or somebody <laughs> could write a blog on it uh, because that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about you know how is that going to be impacted because I'm sure that that's going to be in the list I think one of the I items mean, in the list everybody is running everybody so many people are <laughs> so many organizations are running on Linux you know Linux is open yeah. source now maybe they're yeah. buying it all through you know distributions like Red Hat so that somebody is taking some liability but uh yeah it's it, you know it's big and complicated piece of code <laughs> exactly and you know with a you know with, with kind of this global recession we're seeing at generally when we see a recession the use of open source code spikes hmm. when we are hmm. flush with cash people are going out and buying commercial things but as soon as they are cutting their budgets they start relying on open source so we have this we have three kind of uh this intersection of three things that are impacting our industry right now. One is this potential of open source being consumed more because of the recession. Mm. Two, people are moving to Kubernetes and a microservices environment. And three, we have a problem with our open source security. <laughs> All happening at the same time. It is a very impactful time and it's a very interesting time to be in software, especially on open source projects. Mm. I do think this, you know, the, the perception of security, uh, you know, what's happened is a lot of these problems have come to light. It's not like there are new security. Well, there are new security, problems, but an awful lot of them have been around for a long time. They've just been 
discovered, just being realized. You know, we, we have um, it's a security awakening. Yes, it really is. Yes, is. exactly. So I, I wouldn't want people to sort of think, oh, you know, because people are using open source, things have become less secure. I think actually the opposite is true because there is more kind of light being shone on those projects and there are more people's eyes on that code. It's just that we've got a lot more awareness now of when security, I mean, a decade ago, people lost your data they didn't really even have to tell you about it whereas now it's you know it's a big deal they really have to tell you when they've lost your data <laughs> and you know and i think things like the um cra and the uh, biden administration's SBOM requirements they're guidelines they are you know they're guardrails and we should have been looking at doing these things quite some time ago but there wasn't before the security awakening, before Log4J, let's just put it, mm -hmm. make it clear, um, nobody really cared to talk about it. Security was sort of like testing, you know, it's like, yeah, we'll get to it. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's true. I think testers have always been uh, forgotten heroes uh, and security people are the, are the same way. But now we've gotten some light uh, to the problem. And, you know, when you put shine light on a problem, we generally get it solved. It's just going to take us a while. So and, you know, you said before we on... get, oh, go ahead, Trace. No, go ahead. I was going to say before we get too far along, because we're we're going to be winding up shortly. I want to hear some more about your new book. Yeah. So <laughs> I mentioned about eBPF and how I am fascinated by right. it, and I have been writing a book about it. Uh, it's called Learning eBPF. It is really a dive into kind of how you can get started with eBPF programming. It's really I am a huge believer in seeing something concrete you know writing some code making something happen in order to understand what you know what it's based on I'm, I'm not a, someone who learns very well from looking at you know boxes and lines I want to see code and I want to see what happens so using kind of starting from a hello world going through lots of different examples I'm hoping to convey some of the power of what eBPF is. And if people do want to write their own program, I think not that many people will really need to write their own eBPF code, but if they want to explore it, they might find they really want to get involved and uh, great. And even if they just go, I'm just doing this so I can understand it even better. What's the name and when will it be released? Yeah. So it's, the title is Learning eBPF. It's uh, coming out through O'Reilly. They're the publisher. There is already an early kind of unedited release of a few chapters that you can download from isovalent.com. And then the full book has just gone into production. So literally, you know, I've been looking at uh, copy editors sort of changing the font on <laughs> different uh, terms oh, and so on you're down to so, the really uh, fun part <laughs> yeah we're, we're getting really close now and um, the hope is that it will be out it, it was originally scheduled to be in June but we're well ahead of schedule I think it'll be out probably in March maybe April and uh, I'm really hoping we're going to get physical copies that we can give away at KubeCon in Amsterdam that was that's my kind of dream <laughs> and when is kubecon in the end when is that it's is the that... middle of april i think kubecon uh, in um amsterdam yeah mm -hmm. yeah kubecon yeah. in amsterdam is um it's the week 
the week before RSA, and that's why I know. So it's the <laughs> week of the 10th, I believe. The, no, I'm sorry, the 17th or the 21st. Because our team's going over there, and then they're flying straight from Amsterdam to San Francisco huh. for RSA. So yeah, it's going to be a busy time. I'm only going to RSA. So yay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's going to be fun. I'm, I'm guessing you'll be there, Liz. So you got to look for, look for Alan and um, Mike Vizard and our team oh, yeah, are going to be yeah. over there in Amsterdam doing, doing live streaming, I believe. Um, so that'll awesome. be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I think it'll be a, a really fun event. Amsterdam's a great city and yeah, it's always, it's always good to see the, you know, the community. I, it's, I am a little bit conscious that travel budgets have been cut, so maybe it won't be quite as busy as previous years, but I still think, you know, it's the event in Cloud Native, really. So, uh, yeah, hoping to catch up with lots of people there. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I'll be there, but I wish everybody a good time. <laughs> Will you make it to the Chicago one then later in the year? Uh, I don't know. You know, KubeCon's really big. Um, mm. And yeah, for what we do, uh, it's probably, you know, we're just like a, a blip, you know? <laughs> so it's a little too big for what we're, we're doing. And, um, you know, we're part of the CD Foundation, the open source project. Mm. So uh, I'm going to be at Women in Silicon Valley that week, um, but my partner will be at the CDCon. And a few of our committers will be at CDCon. So that's what we really focus on is uh, CDCon. Generally, we would have gone to the, um, the function next week. Uh, mm. I think it is next week. It is, um, yeah. Yeah, but we're just we're conscious of travel. We're, we're a small startup. We don't can't go to everything. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And like Liz said, with the economy, it's not going to be COVID that keeps people from traveling. It's going to be budgets. <laughs> And, so the, it'll, it'll and the be pain interesting. in the butt of traveling. Traveling is not has not been fun, and in in, at least in the U.S. in the last uh, six months, it's been really it's been challenging. It would be easier to drive. <laughs> oh gosh! Well, I have. I'm not going to have to drive all the way from London to Seattle. That would be no. <laughs> we'll be back on boats, right? That would be a long I am, journey. I am thinking of seriously considering cycling from London to Amsterdam, though, for for KubeCon. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit of logistics to to sort How out. How far is that? Um, depends where you catch the ferry because you do have to catch a ferry to get across the sea. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I am looking at a route that is probably only a total of about 150 miles oh, wow. on land, and then 150, 160, and then an overnight ferry. There's a considerably longer route with a considerably shorter. Um, or considerably longer riding, but considerably shorter ferry crossing. So you'd but, have to decide whether you want to do the long ride or the short ride. Yeah, it's more of a case of how long I'm going to take over it. And those questions of things like how I'm going to get my luggage. Although one of my colleagues has volunteered to take a bag. So uh, hopefully that'll be. <laughs> that'd, be that'd be really fun though. Yeah, yeah, I think it'll be good. And I've after, um, I've got a you know couple of conferences over the next couple of weeks, but uh, when I'm through that, I know there's a group of people who are also interested in the idea of putting a ride together. So, uh, so if anybody's watching this and wants to join a ride from London to Amsterdam, there you go. <laughs> King Liz on on LinkedIn. Yeah, LinkedIn's King good. Liz. Yeah. 
and there's <laughs> there's going to be a group of writers heading to Amsterdam. Well, I've said Liz, it out loud now, so it's going to happen. Oh yeah, now she has to do it. <laughs> right. Well, Liz, thank you so much for being with us today. It was really fun getting to to meet you and chat with you, and um, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll bring you back to Tech Strong for some other fun stuff that we do here. And um, sounds like you and Tracy'll get to see each other in person, maybe sometime soon at another event, but we really appreciate you being here with us today. And um, absolute pleasure. Yeah. Thanks nice. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yes. Liz, it was fabulous catching up with you. Yeah. Great to see you. All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining us today and stay tuned for more fun stuff on TechStrong TV.